things you don't really need to know or probably should. I'm Kira Revan and this, this is the Sunday 7. In today's episode, we investigate the history of the lie detector, why your flavour of vape could cause you some serious problems, and what Barack Obama has to say about social media. But first, it was on this day in 1934 that Lawrence Hammond invented his musical namesake, the famous organ, manufactured in Chicago. It uses no vibrating parts, pipes or reeds, has 105 keys, a 20-note pedal board, and gave the Booker MT Steve Winwood and the Charlatans their distinctive sound. Everyone's favourite national treasure, Sir David Attenborough, has this week been named Champion of the Earth by the United Nations. It's an award that recognises his commitment to telling stories about our planet. He's 95 and still fighting fit with his new documentary series Prehistoric Planet debuting on Apple TV Plus in May. Here's his interview with Ingar Anderson, the Executive Director of the United Nations Environment Programme. I'm truly, truly, extremely honoured. The United Nations, without them, we will never solve the environmental crisis. The world has to get together. We are living in a a new era in which nationalism is simply not enough. We must wave goodbye to it. We must feel that we are all citizens of this one planet because unless we do, we won't solve the problems. No, exactly. And I think you have inspired action And you continue now in Glasgow to hold our feet to the fire. And I have to ask you, what worries you the most? We know what the problems are and we know how to solve them. All we lack is uh, unified action. These problems cannot be solved by one nation, no matter how big that single nation is. The air we breathe was within hours ago on across another continent. And we are one. This has never happened before in history. But neither have the technical answers that we have happened before. Now one person, you, me, our scientists, can speak to the world. And the world must listen. Because if it doesn't, we are headed for disaster. So what does Sir David want people to take away from his career and campaigns? The message is that it can be done. The message is that it is possible. The message is that the natural world has more resources than we can possibly imagine. Uh, We've worked out how to kill them. Now we could give them a chance for them to come back and save themselves and save us. And fortunately, the images that this device that we're talking on now, they have international understanding. It's they that will, in the end, convince people much more than any argument by me or a scientist or whatever. It is seeing those things that everybody in the world recognises are crucially important to this planet. You could listen to him talk forever, couldn't you? A perfect storm of environmental damage and sexually transmitted disease has meant a certain species is now classed as endangered. No, not the student population of Newcastle, but the cuddly Australian furballs known as koalas. According to the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Red List, there were fewer than 500,000 in the wild, which the Australian Koala Foundation reckons to be overestimating the population by about 90%, putting the actual figure nearer to 60,000. Here's Bloomberg's Ben Westcott to explain why. So there are three primary things that have led to koalas being endangered, and those three things are disease, 
habitat loss and climate change. Unfortunately, koalas are affected by a very rapidly spreading variant of the chlamydia virus, which leaves many sterile and kills others. At the same time, they lose their uh, eucalyptus trees that they need to eat and to sleep for uh, the production of houses and farms. And finally, they've been very seriously affected by climate change-induced events. For instance, during the devastating bushfires in 2019-2020, it's estimated some 60,000 koalas were killed. What's being done about it? We can't lose koalas. Surely the Australian government won't let that happen. The government has taken action to save the koala, including listing it as endangered. They announced on January 29, $36 million US to help the iconic Australian marsupial. And that includes habitat conservation, as well as tracking populations. But activists say that amount of money is only a drop in the ocean of what's needed to help the animal. So unless we want to show our great-grandkids pictures of koala bears next to drawings of the dodo, we're going to have to do a lot more to help. Still to come on the Sunday 7, Obama talks about his Twitter feed and have you ever wondered what mushrooms say to each other? Lie detectors make for great drama, don't they? A bead of sweat trickling down a bad guy's forehead as a Hollywood cop cracks a case wide open thanks to a wobbly needle on some graph paper and it's been a staple of on-screen tension for decades. But the lie detector or polygraph to those in the know has been a controversial and often misunderstood part of policing for the best part of a century. Ama Katawala's new book called Tremors in the Blood looks into the machine invented by John Larson and Leonard Keeler, devised shortly after fingerprint recognition had broken into the main stream, the blood pressure-based device was initially ridiculed by newspapers and police officers who weren't too keen on the strange mix of stethoscope, wind gauge and radio being able to catch out criminal masterminds. It was so controversial, a US House committee warned the world had been hoodwinked by a myth in a metal box. So why is it still being used and why hasn't the UK been as accepting as our American friends? To answer those questions for us is Peter Blesclay, the famous face of Channel 4's Hunted, an esteemed ex-undercover Scotland Yard detective who's on his own mission to find the murderer on the run Kevin Parley, subject of his podcast, Manhunt. Peter, thanks for joining us. Can you start by telling me how the polygraph works? Yeah, no, you, you get wired up, basically, your, your fingers, your chest um, and your arms. And what the, the person conducting the test will initially do is try and get a control sample from you. So they'll ask you questions that you're simply not going to lie about. You hope, like, what's your name? What's your date of birth? Are you married? How many kids you got? That kind of stuff. And then they will, quite cleverly, with a structured line of questioning, get into the the questions that might be a bit more tricky for somebody to try and be deceitful about. Um, And they will measure, uh, generally speaking, the perspiration levels of that person whilst they're being interviewed. Is there a way of gaming the system? Does the fable drawing pin in the shoe trick work? Some people will try and negate the tests, but... Uh, an experienced operator will be able to test um, and will be able to tell if that person is just kind of spoiling the test for want of a better expression. How useful have polygraphs been? You'd be surprised how much they're used in the UK. They're used in the family courts sometimes. They're used in civil courts quite a bit. But where they really come into their own is when they're used by employers um, who like to wire up a potential job candidate 
um, and and interview them uh, whilst whilst they're attached to a polygraph machine, to a lie detector. And that is surprisingly common. Why haven't the UK adopted them in criminal courts? They remain a grey area. They are not 100% um, convincing. There's an element of doubt still. But of course, employers, for example, say, say somebody's interviewing a nanny for a job. And of course, it's a very important job. You're going to entrust your much-loved children to this person. Then certain employers want that nanny, that candidate for the job, wired up to take the test. You're on the hunt for Kevin Parley, a killer on the loose. Would you use one to help you? Well, yes, I, I did consider it very much so because um, during my hunt for Kevin Parley, I had lots of people come forward and give me information, but I've forever got a game of tennis going on in my head. On one side of the court is truth, and the other side of the court says lies. So I'm forever trying to tell whether what somebody is telling me is either the truth or maybe a lie. They're trying to deceive me. Uh, And one such person that came forward, um, I wanted to hook up to take a a lie detector test, but they are astonishingly expensive. You will not get much change out of a £1,000. And whilst our BBC podcast is... Very popular. Um, you know, the budget doesn't stretch that far, sadly. Thanks, Peter. Hope you get your man. Thank you. Manhunt kept finding Kevin Barr. It's out there on all the platforms. In a week where Elon Musk continues to try and buy Twitter for more money than most of us can even understand, former President Obama has spoken out on the risks of social media and disinformation. He definitely had some choice words to say about what comes up on his social media feeds. All we see is a constant feed of content where useful, factual information and happy diversions and cat videos flow alongside lies, conspiracy theories, junk science, quackery, White supremacists, racist tracks, misogynist screeds. And over time, we lose our capacity to distinguish between fact, opinion, and wholesale fiction. Or maybe we just stop caring. And all of us, including our children, learn that if you want to rise above the crowd, above the din, if you want to be liked and shared, and yes, go viral, then peddling controversy, outrage, even hate, often gives you an edge. I wonder who he could be referring to, someone who strokes outrage and hate online. He goes on to talk about how those in positions of power promoting conspiracy theories and deliberately misleading people has a real-world impact on our lives. People like Putin, and Steve Bannon for that matter, understand it's not necessary for people to believe this information in order to weaken democratic institutions. You just have to flood a country's public square with enough raw sewage. You just have to raise enough questions, spread enough dirt, plant enough conspiracy theorizing that citizens no longer know what to believe. Once they lose trust in their leaders, in mainstream media, in political institutions, in each other, in the possibility of truth, the game's won. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the vaping flavors that could spell danger and why it could pay to look up to the sky tonight. Right after this. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. Now, while that may sound like someone hitting Aphex Twin's keyboard with a boxing glove, what's going on here is something rather remarkable. What you're hearing is, in fact, a group of oyster mushrooms talking to each other. The electrical impulses in our shrooms has been known about for a while, but mathematicians noticed the signals intensified when one-eating fungi came into contact with wooden blocks, suggesting they were putting the word out for their brethren. Here's Andrew Adamatsky, who wrote the paper for the Royal Society of Science on how the whole shebang started with slime mould. Basically, it starts with slime mould, and slime mould responds to various types of stimulation, to chemical stimulation, to mechanical, to optical stimulation, by trains of the spikes of the electrical potential. And by making several sensors with slime mould, I thought that why not to try insert electrodes in fungi and check how they respond, and what's, for example, endogenous activity of the mycelium. How on earth do you measure electricity in a mushroom? I insert one electrode in the uh, stalk, of the fruit body and another electrode in the uh, cup and record it for several days. And I saw that we can observe trains of spikes and the um, average width of the spike is about uh, 20 minutes and the distance between spikes is about one hour and up to three hours. We started to dig deeper and uh, try to classify spiking activity, types of spikes, distribution on the widths and the amplitudes and number of spikes of the train. And then we stimulated mushrooms or mycelium blocks with light, with mechanical pressure, with chemicals like chloroform to make them sleep and with uh, cortisol to check how do they respond to stress and check a spiking activity. And we found that indeed in all kinds of experiments, mushrooms respond quite distinctively to different types of uh, stimulation. Andrew's study gives him cause to believe that there are up to 50 different clusters of activity, which he suggests could be classed as mushroom words. He flippin' loves mushrooms. As well as discovering all this, he seems to be intent on living in a mushroom too. And it's not as crazy as that sounds. 
We are making growing buildings for mushrooms. Basically, we use fungal blocks and make buildings where some part of the buildings will be dried, fungal blocks, and some parts will be alive. And these alive parts will react to light, chemicals in the environment, maybe to touch of the inhabitants, maybe to the hormones emitted by inhabitants. And then using these fungal computers, they will make decisions about how to proceed. Maybe switch light on or emit some pheromones or maybe uh, open window. Basically just like intelligent house. They sure do sound magic. I think I just heard Kevin McLeod calling his camera crew. Brace yourself, Andrew. When you look up to the sky at night, what do you see? If you're lucky enough to be out on a clear night, the twinkle of billions of stars, planets, satellites and Elon Musk's car being driven by a mannequin are all there if you're lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. No night is ever the same either, thanks to our good old friend Gravitational Pull. Different planets move at different speeds and on different arcs, which is why this week is something rather special. There's a rare celestial spectacle taking place until Monday in which Mars, Venus, Saturn and Jupiter will all be aligned in a perfectly straight line and visible to the naked eye. We got quite excited about being able to stand in our garden and see a brace of planets. So Smart 7 UK host Jamie called up friend of the show Robert Massey, who's Deputy Executive Director of the Royal Astronomical Society, to see if tonight's the night to sleep underneath the stars. So, Robert, I know next to nothing about planets or space. Um, Can you explain to me how this phenomenon occurs? Uh, The answer is that what you're looking at here is a kind of celestial coincidence. So you have to imagine that the planets more or less move around the sun in the same plane. And by that, I mean, if you imagine looking down on a record, an old fashioned vinyl record turntable, and that spins round, and you imagine the planets anchored in that record. What can happen is, if you're on any of those planets, then it's pretty common for at least two of them to be close together. Uh, What's less common is when you get more of them close together, or at least in the same part of the sky, which is what some parts of the world are seeing at the moment. The last one I remember that was really visible easily from the UK was back in about 2002 or around then and I remember you could see basically Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn all in the evening sky and quite well from the UK. We're recording this on a delightfully clear sunny Thursday morning in the UK. We never seem to get much luck with these kind of things. (laughs) One of the issues for people in the UK is that we're so far north that the alignment of the planets that their relative position to the sun and the horizon is going to make them very low in the sky at sunrise so even by sunrise uh, saturn and mars are uh, well they're they're reasonably high in the sky but by the time you get to sunrise the sky will be quite bright it will be hard to see them venus is very low down it's pretty bright so you might be able to spot it but it's going to be a challenge for people in the uk people much further south if you say go down somewhere like australia you'll get a far better view the planets almost appear to be in a straight line is there an anomaly coming up that you guys are all getting geared up for the good news in the uk actually is that there's a much better opportunity on around the 24th of june uh when the uh, this time you'll have not only uh venus mars jupiter and saturn but also mercury in the sky as well oh, wow. it'll be harder it well it will still be reasonably hard you still need to know what you're doing 
but I think there's a better chance of at least seeing four of those five planets. Well, Robert, I I know about uh, 200,000 people that are going to be at Glastonbury Festival on the 24th of June, and I would imagine their state of mind, they'd be bang up for staring at the sky around about that time of night. I mean, I won't, I won't comment too much, <laughs> but having been to Glastonbury, Glastonbury many years ago now, but but if you're um if you're up early at Glastonbury and you've got a good eastern horizon, it's not a fairly hilly sight, isn't it? But east yeah. is where you need to be looking. The direction of sunrise. Don't stare at the sun. 4 a.m. is the time to be looking east. And, you know, if it's if it's beautiful weather, it's not a mud fest this year. Uh, you know, and any DJs want to draw attention to that, it'll be fantastic. And for as amateurs, do you recommend the old stargazing apps on the iPads and phones to kind of point them out? Because I get completely lost. The one that's supposed to look like a bear, to me, I'm not being funny, it doesn't look much like a bear to me. Well, most to be honest, the, the yeah, the constellations are quite symbolic, but they... I mean, the the plough. I know the plough. I can see, I always see the plough and I find, I think I'm very clever when I manage to spot the plough. Yeah, Yeah. well, that's a great starting point. And if you look with, and that, then the great, the great Verosa Major is around. It doesn't look a lot like a bear because bears don't have long tails, but it's not bad. If you're looking, trying to know whether you've seen a star or a planet, one of the keys, the clues is that planets don't tend to twinkle because they're, whereas stars are effectively point sources because although they're huge, they're a great distance, an enormous distance away. The other thing you mentioned, the apps, um, there are good ones. Yeah, Stellarium is pretty good. Uh, That's the one I was using today to check on some of these things, just on a laptop, actually. But but there are versions of that on phones. That can be really helpful. If you do connect it effectively to a compass and to the direction and so on, then it is a really nice way of finding out where things are in the sky. But you do have to do that little bit of work. Usually you have to line up the phone and make sure it's picking up, not just where you are, but the time, but the direction too. But once you've done all that, that can be a very good way of finding things in the sky. Robert, I feel enlightened. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, And I've always wanted to keep reaching for the stars, my friend. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. These days, it seems that you can't walk too far down any street without walking through a cloud of sweet-smelling fog from someone's vape. But is there a real difference between the cherry-flavored cloud and the bubblegum one besides taste? With some vape products containing as much nicotine as a whole pack of cigarettes, researchers and scientists are interested in the longer-term effects of regular vaping. Here's Jim Dwyer, a doctor and broadcaster, talking about what a new study has uncovered. In a well-designed study of young adult mice, a group of researchers from UC San Diego and other institutions decided to assess the effects of Juul devices and their most popular flavors of mint and mango. The mice were exposed to flavored Juul aerosols three times a day for three months, and then researchers looked for signs of inflammation in multiple body systems including the brain, heart, lungs, and colon. The most striking effects were seen in the brain, where several inflammatory markers were elevated. Especially concerning was inflammation seen in a brain region that has been linked to anxiety, depression, and addictive behaviors, which could further exacerbate substance use and addiction. So inhaling an addicting substance can actually make you more susceptible to getting addicted to it. There was also evidence that the flavor chemicals themselves led to variations of inflammation. For instance, mice that inhaled mint aerosols were much more sensitive to the effects of bacterial pneumonia compared to those that inhaled mango aerosols. According to the authors, every organ in the body has its own finely tuned immune environment, so disturbing that balance through e-cigarette use could lead to many long-term health effects, 
yet to be understood. Well, there you have it. Vaping is such a new habit that nobody really knows if all the different flavours have different effects on the body. Who knows, maybe that marshmallow flavour one your younger brother keeps joking on might knock some sense into him. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with a regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.